This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Tigers in 20, a Go Tigers 247 audio podcast. Your one-stop shop for all things University of Memphis Tigers athletics. Here are your hosts, founder of Go Tigers 247, Brooks Hansen, and lead writer for Go Tigers 247, Christian Fowler. What's up, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode. I'm your host, Christian Fowler, and joining me, as always, is Go Tigers 247 founder, Brooks Hansen, and Go Tigers 247 digital content creator, Kenny Stubblefield. And guys, it happened. We had football on Saturday night. Uh, it's something that we we never we didn't know if it was going to happen initially. We finally made it there. We talked about it last week on the podcast. How excited we were that it was upcoming. Now Memphis has played their first game of the season, thirteen point win over Arkansas State, moved to one and zero. How exciting was it for you guys to watch football again? Man, it was it was tremendous. You know, I, I think uh, one thing that was the first takeaway for me is that football on TV during Corona takes up like a third of your day with one game. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> it's freaking, it's a freak. But yeah, man, it was awesome. Uh, I mean, just being able to like, <laughs> I mean, be able to sit back on the couch and, and just chill with a beer and watch some football for once and not have to like watch some dumb Netflix documentary was like the highlight of my weekend. Yeah, it was a long game, man. <laughs> Brooks, I think, texted halfway through and was like, or at the very end was like, this is going to be a four-hour game. It was funny, man. It was it was very long. Um, but it was good. It was good to see the, the team back out there. Yeah, I was at the Liberty Bowl from about 5.15 until about 12, 12.30-ish. So I, it, was, it was a long day for me, too. Um, but yeah, like you guys said, very exciting, was happy to be back and, and watch the team again and all things considered, I think it was a good performance. I don't think it was perfect by any means. No one expected it to be with the situation and, and what's going on and no spring practice and limited fall camp. I don't think anyone, well, I take that back. People definitely expected Memphis to be perfect, but they should not have. There's no reason to expect a team that barely gets any practice to you know not have penalties or have a turnover or have some mistakes on you know a certain side of the ball um so i did see plenty of people that were like oh my god we're terrible we suck after like 10 minutes into the game which is always aggravating but that fans are going to be fans um as far as the defensive side of the ball goes it was ugly for the first couple of possessions they cleaned it up looked really good throughout the game on the offensive side of the ball i know they had a couple drives stall uh, but for the most part, dominant offense that we're used to seeing. Uh, the backfield didn't really miss a beat without Kenny Gainwell. I thought Rodriguez Clark ran hard downhill, uh, made tacklers fear him, which is what you have to do as a running back. Went over 100 yards in his first career start. Kylan Watkins looked really dynamic. I thought Asa Martin was going to be used more than Kylan, uh, but they, they got Kylan involved in the passing game and the running game. I think Asa only had one touch throughout the game. 
Uh, Tim Taylor got a couple cut, a uh, couple touches. Mark Quavius Weaver was in there for a couple plays. So they used a ton of running backs in the game. I, if you ask me, it's you know to get those guys some run to see what you have in the backfield and live game action because a lot of the, those guys either haven't played or haven't played much. And then as far as it goes with Brady White, still looks like one of the better quarterbacks in college football. Um, Demonte Coxie is going to be Demonte Coxie. He's going to shit talk the whole game. He's going to you know, put his put his hands on receivers and get him out of his way and make big catches. And then someone that I've been looking forward to the entire offseason that we've talked about plenty of times, uh, even after the game on Saturday with Sean Dykes. I mean, it, a, a guy with tremendous receiving ability as a tight end was really overshadowed by Joey Magnifico throughout his career and, and then had the injury last year that, that forced him to miss most of the season. Came out 10 catches, 137 yards, two touchdowns. Couldn't ask for a better performance than that. I said it a couple times during the game. I won't be surprised at all if he breaks Memphis's single season tight end receiving record. I think I said that halfway through the game and he ended with 140 yards. So overall, I think it was a solid performance. Uh, and, and, you know, for you guys, obviously watching it at home, having a little bit of a better vantage point than me, uh, who who stuck out the most? Like, I, mean, I know I mentioned a lot of players, but, but who were you guys the most impressed with on Saturday night? I mean, personally... I know he didn't get a ton of of play, and I wish that I'd seen more returns, but Gabe Rogers looks like he could be special this year. Uh, you know, m- minus that w- one, that penalty was horrible. Terrible. I mean, that was, that was terrible. Yeah. And two, I think he tripped up on his own shoestring, but, you know, like that, that was – dynamic that was i mean for me i'm looking forward to seeing him get that ball uh on on returns all season long that's the dude that i'm looking for for an exciting play um so he stood out um you know i I feel like some of memphis's uh, defensive backs were really good one guy that we talked about leading up to this game was jaleel clemens and he he kind of was non-existent for me um, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm not seeing the nuances of, uh, the defense like you might, but, uh, I honestly expected to see a little bit more from him. So, uh, really looking forward to seeing what he does the rest of the year to see if, if he can live up to our hype. Yeah. For me on the offensive side of the ball, um, and you, we've heard this every year that, that he's been here. Um, he's finally healthy, but I remember, I remember Christian, saying at when we were in Dallas for the uh, Cotton Bowl, um, Christian said after seeing a couple of practices and watching some warm-up stuff, he looked at me and he said, I think I think Brady White's finally healthy. I think his legs are finally healthy. Because uh, even in the, the Cotton Bowl, you saw a lot more mobility in the pocket. You saw him running more. And then you saw it in full force this past week against Arkansas State. He, he made some moves. He was slick in the pocket. Um, you know, he, uh, avoided rushes, avoided rushers in a really clever way. And then ran out and got a, I think what was his longest rush? Was it 18 yards? I think something like that. Yeah. Like, it was, it was definitely over 10 to 15 yards, somewhere in that range. And, and I don't think you would have seen him do that. You know, I think he was obviously still recovering from his, um, his, uh, foot, foot injury that he had when he first got here. And then, um, obviously just being dinged up you know, a little bit last year, but I think he's healthy this year. And, and so that was impressive. Um, 
Brooks texted us, I think, in the middle of the game, and he said, um, as a wide receiver, and I agreed with him on this, um, Taj Washington is going to be a dynamic receiver for the Tigers, I think. Brooks, what what did you see that made you point out Taj Washington? Yeah, I mean, he's just, one, he's super fast. He's physical as a receiver. Uh, He, to me, honestly, I know he's listed at 5'11", but he looks bigger than that on the field. I don't know if it's his physicality that that does it for him um, or if just the guys he was matched up against on Saturday were smaller DBs. But, I mean, he looked like he was just – he looked like a freshman that came in ready to play right away. Um, so he may not put up the numbers, but I think he'll – he adds – uh, a presence on the edge for Memphis in that that receiver slot that gives them an option that keeps guys honest with you know Demonte Coxey and you know Sean Dykes uh, coming from the inside. I mean Dykes was he looked like a slot receiver oh, at the yeah. tight end. I mean he was he was that good. Yeah, I think you make a really good point that a lot of people may miss about these other receivers because if Calvin Austin and Taj Washington weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing and getting open and forcing defensive backs' hands and defensive coordinators' hands, then DeMonte Coxie and Sean Dykes aren't running open all game. So uh, I know Calvin had a couple drops. He didn't have a clean game at all. I think a lot of that's, like I said, just jitters being the first game of the season. I think Calvin continues to get better throughout the year. We saw what he could do last year. Taj seemed to be open the majority of the game. He's just a really good route runner, a versatile guy uh, that can play inside and out. You know, you know, I get a little carried away when I talk football, so if I'm going too long, stop me because I, I want to hit on a lot of the points you guys made. Uh, <laughs> and first with Kenny talking about Brady, and it's something that we saw in the Cotton Bowl last year with the mobility. It came, It's like it came out of nowhere. He got a couple weeks off uh, after the conference championship game into the Cotton Bowl and looked like a completely different quarterback. I thought that was the best game he ever played in a Memphis uniform. I know it wasn't a win. I know it wasn't a perfect game. But as far as the throws that he made from off-balance stances, from his back foot, uh, from rolling left and throwing right, to me that was his best game at Memphis as far as just being mobile and his arm. And then you saw that mobility carry over. Uh, I've heard some people say that he may have been dealing with an ankle injury last year, like an ankle sprain or something that was really hindering him last year. I I don't know if he was or not. It's not something I've picked and prodded and asked about, especially, you know, coaches like Norvell don't talk about injuries. Um, But to me, I mean, it looks like he is a completely healthy player at this point. He's running around. He's not slow. Uh, He's a better athlete than you would think he is and then what he's shown for the most of his career. So him going forward, I mean, Memphis is just lucky. We talked about it when Kenny Gainwell left. To have a veteran quarterback who is very good like Brady White, he's going to be the player that more than likely floats this offense all year. Brooks, you mentioned Jaleel Clemens. I think he had three hurries on the night. He didn't have any sacks or, or any noticeable stats, um, which which is why you mentioned the nuances. Sometimes it's hard when it comes to defensive players to, to see how much impact they have on a game. Uh, but Jalil, I, I can think of a couple plays where he came off the ball extremely fast, got into the backfield, and forced a throw or you know forced an incompletion. Uh, there was one screenplay where they let him go, and and he was he was back there for the quarterback. Even had time to turn around and throw a screen pass. Um, but he was not my biggest defensive standout. I thought the linebackers, which is something that Silverfield has talked about a ton throughout the offseason, were both really really good. I thought JJ and Xavier Collins. Very good games. I think uh, Zay had seven tackles, uh, interception, and a sack. He was all over the field. J.J. Russell had a forced fumble and a pass breakup. 
uh, on the you know Arkansas State's last offensive play. He had that pass breakup. So that's what you need. I mean, veteran linebackers are going to be all over the field. They didn't rotate linebackers as much as I thought they would. It was a lot of J.J. and Zay. And then Quindell, who who I think is one of the best players on the defense, didn't start, which was weird. It was uh, Tyrez and Sanchez-Blake that started, and then they started kind of rotating uh, Quindell in on the second or third series, and he played more as the game went out. I think I think Quindell's a player that should be on, on, on the field on every play because uh, when he's on the field, good things happen. You saw the the screen that he absolutely crushed in the backfield, uh, a great center fielder at the safety position and somebody who can come up and lay a hit. So those three guys for me stood out. O'Brien was really good up front. He always is. He doesn't get enough credit, especially being an undersized guy playing 3-4 nose tackle when he has for the majority of his career at Memphis other than last year. So I know a lot of people were down on the defense. A lot of people were like, our defense is terrible again. What happened? I don't think that's the case. New scheme, new coaches, some new personnel. Obviously, they were dealing with some things on Saturday. Thomas Pickens, who was listed as a starter, didn't play. Uh, there was a couple other guys, uh, a couple other guys I can't can't remember off the top of my head that were listed on the two deep that that didn't play or didn't get in the game. So uh, we don't really know what was going on there. But they definitely had some attrition that they were dealing with on Saturday night. That you know that plays a role. Uh, and then, like I said, new scheme, new coordinator. A completely new defensive staff, a solid offense in Arkansas State, and they they hung thirty on on SMU last year. They've got guys that can play, and after those, I mean, Arkansas State scored fourteen points on two of their first three possessions and and finished with twenty four points. So I don't think there's anything to worry about. They get this week off, they get a bye week, and then they come out against Houston back at home. I think that defense looks completely different the next time we see them on September nineteenth. Christian, I have and you don't have to apologize for talking too much about football because I love talking with you about football um, because you add perspective that I don't think Brooks and I can because you just know the game so well but there's two things I wanted to ask you about Christian Um, I want to get your thoughts and you can answer both of these in the same um, same uh, monologue I guess but um, what did you think about the offensive line how did they um, do you know kind of a a newer offensive line especially when you lose your anchor in Dustin Woodard Um, how did they do against Arkansas State and then I wanted to ask you about this article that I read um, that was written a couple of days after the Arkansas State game um, by uh, the draftnetwork.com. A guy named Carter Donick wrote an article about Brady White. And this is, uh, I'm just going to read one line to you and you can break it down because I'm sure you've read it. But he says, don't let the sparkling 275 yards and four touchdowns on just 36 attempts fool you. Memphis quarterback Brady White showed us exactly who we thought he was in Saturday's emphatic win over Arkansas State, the definition of average. What are your thoughts on that and and the offensive line? And you can just go. So I'll start on the offensive line. I thought it was a good performance. They had some pre-snap penalties. They weren't perfect by any means. A lot of shifting has gone on in that offensive line. Uh, you got Dylan Parham kicking from guard to tackle. I thought he played an extremely clean game. If if Dylan Parham was Obina as a size, he might be the best offensive lineman in college football, and I truly believe that he is that talented, uh, especially as an undersized guy. So you have him moving from guard to tackle. Uh, Manny and Ronald Lopez moving from guard to center. Um, Evan Fields is one of the guys that I mentioned was listed on the two deep, didn't make it. He was or didn't play on Saturday. Was listed as a starting right guard. Uh, he didn't play. Then you had Obina and Titus Jones were rolling in and out at left tackle, which is something that Memphis does that's a little bit different than other schools. It's way more popular in college 
to roll offensive linemen than it is in the NFL. NFL, the five that are out there are going to be the five that are out there. In college, you'll see some more bodies thrown out there. Um, so no surprise I mean, that we don't know what's happening. I mean, Obina could have been dealing with injuries. It could just be them rotating guys to keep them fresh because it's the first game of the year. But I thought everyone that played uh, uh, did a pretty good job. Isaac Ellis is an absolute animal. Uh, he has, I think he had, he's a guy that has some plays that he'll take off plays, uh, which is something that you want to clean up and correct. And once again, a lot of that can be with it being the first game and not a lot of preparation time and just being gassed. It, go go back and watch Rodriguez's Clark Rodriguez Clark's touchdown. Dreek's touchdown run up the middle. The only reason he scored is because of Isaac Ellis. So you had, uh, I think it was still Obina at left tackle. It was either Obina or Titus Jones, uh, and Isaac plays left guard. So Isaac was comboing to the DN and working his way up to the second level. So he combos on the DN, completely shoves him on his in- inside shoulder to the left tackle's outside shoulder. So he's out of the play, which is why that hole was so big. And then he combos up. Typically, you'd combo up to a linebacker, but the linebackers were all blocked. The safety was coming down. Isaac Ellis absolutely destroyed the safety. And if you go back and watch it, Isaac Ellis was a one-man wrecking crew on that play. So I think the offensive line is fine. Silverfield is is one of the best offensive line coaches in the country. He proved that. He still has his hand in the offensive line. Jim Bridge is a very good offensive line coach as well. So those guys are going to be fine all season. I think they have depth that they haven't necessarily had in years past. Uh, some Sometimes in the past few years, it's been like, okay, they got their five, but if one of those guys goes down, they could be in trouble I think they have a lot of depth up front. I think they'll be fine. Uh, and then, and then, as far as you said with Brady White, Brady White, since he got to Memphis, has been a polarizing player. You have people that have different opinions on him. It's a lot more positive now than it was his first year with the team, but he's still pretty polarizing. There's still people that don't like him and say he's a game manager and he can't throw the ball. Here's the thing about Brady White that sets him apart. It's his mind. You watch what he does pre-snap. Not many college quarterbacks do that much pre-snap. He gets them in the right play based off of the look of the defense. He's an extremely intelligent football player. He understands defenses. He understands schemes. He understands personnel. There's a lot of college football players that do not understand that type of stuff and don't learn that stuff until they get to the NFL. Uh, So that's what sets him apart. And then as far as uh, them saying he's average, I'm assuming a lot of that is because a lot of his throws were dink and dunk, short throws, there's only so much. I mean, it's a game plan. You have a game, whatever, whatever is called, whatever's in the game plan, whatever the offensive coordinator feels like needs to be attacked against a defense is what a quarterback's going to do. So if they felt like they had an advantage running stops and digs and hitches, which is a lot of what they did, then that's why they did that. There will be games where they open up the passing game and they go deep more. Like I said, go watch the Cotton Bowl game against Penn State. They knew they needed chunk plays. Uh, they knew how good Penn State's linebackers were and how good they are in coverage and flowing to the ball, so they went over the top a lot more. It's all dependent on uh, game-to-game basis, what they feel like they have as mismatches and what they need to do. So I, I disagree with that. I don't think he's average. I saw something today on Bleacher Report that had him listed as the number five or number six overall quarterback in college football. So everyone has an opinion. That's fine. I, I'm not necessarily saying he's going to be a great NFL quarterback or anything like that. But as far as the college game goes, I think Brady White is well above average. So I know that you don't like to give a lot of of, of predictions in terms of you said you don't you don't know exactly what kind of quarterback Brady will be in the NFL. But um, at the very end of his article, he said that you know, Connor Dunnick said that he thinks that Brady is a undrafted guy, seventh round guy at the very best. Um, and more than likely is a third-string quarterback in the NFL. What are your thoughts on on that? 
I think I mean I think that's probably pretty accurate. I think he is a sixth to seventh round guy. I guess I guess in theory he could slide up into the fifth round, but I just I don't really see that. Uh, I think if he would have been a higher draft pick, he would have already left because I'm I'm pretty sure he turned in his draft papers last year um, during the Cotton Bowl time. I don't think he's a starting quarterback in the NFL. Like I said, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying this is a guy that's going to go to the NFL and be a perennial pro bowler. But I do think that he could end up being a guy that goes to the NFL and and is an asset to a quarterback room as far as a mental perspective, as far as a knowledge of the game perspective, and could have a, a decently long career in the NFL as a as a backup and as a guy that, that brings in knowledge to younger players when they when they get drafted or when they get into the league. And and there's nothing wrong with that. You go make millions of dollars being a backup quarterback. You offered me that. I would take it tomorrow. So I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I don't think anyone's expecting Brady White to be a second or third round pick and and go be a starter in the NFL. But but like I said, I think it's perfectly fine to go be a career backup. And uh, I'm sure you meet a lot of cool people along the way, and you get to help mentor young quarterbacks. And that's something I could see him doing if he doesn't want to pursue going straight. Uh, into his profession and he wants to go go try the NFL for a little while so that's that's pretty much what I see as a Brady White career in the NFL if if that's the option that he chooses all right so we're we're 20 minutes in and we're all football and I love it we all wanted football and you're getting it so let's talk about one more thing before we take a break and then try to talk a little bit about college basketball and the can he bleep it fucked up NCAA all right, so um, we're nine days away. We're recording on Wednesday, September 9th. We're nine days away from Memphis's second game against the Houston Cougars. Fingers crossed, knock on wood. I feel like I see postponements every day across the entire landscape of college football day to day right now. So nine days. I'm mark it down in permanent marker. We're not going to have a delay. What does Memphis need to do between now and next Friday night to come out with their first conference win for the 2020-21 season? Well, I think the first thing is clean up the defensive side of the ball. Uh, that's that's the first thing. Start start faster than you did. Like I said, they got better as the game continued. But playing against a team like Houston, I know they don't have a great quarterback and I know they, they do have some good receivers, but they don't necessarily have a great quarterback that's going to scare a lot of teams. Uh, I know a lot of people aren't fans of Dana Holgerson, but he is a great offensive mind. Look at his track record. Very good offensive coach. Uh, so if, if he sees weaknesses that are lasting and that are going to last throughout the season, he's going to attack them, and he's probably going to attack them pretty well. So you got to clean up on the defensive side of the ball. you got to start faster. I think as far as creating turnovers, they did an incredible job. Three turnovers. Uh, three sacks, five tackles for loss. So as far as splash plays went, they played very well. Uh, but you want to see those in-between plays, those first and second down plays that no one really pays attention to that gain 11 to 12 yards. Those are the ones that need to be cleaned up. Some of the penalties, you had a couple of uh, of after the, after the play penalties. I thought some of them were pretty bogus. Some of the personal foul calls, uh, the rough and the passer, I couldn't really see on the rough and the passer, but it didn't look like it from my vantage point. Um so you want to clean those things up, even if you felt like they were ticky-tacky calls. You don't want to cost your team 15 yards, especially if it's a third down uh, or a big play. So clean up on defense, uh, a little bit more efficient on offense. I, I thought they were very efficient. But to be a little bit more efficient as far as play calling, 
Uh, I know a lot of people were griping about they were running too much. Uh, they're going to be vanilla. It, it's it's a game. It's first game of the year against an out-of-conference opponent. Expect a lot different looks. That's what college football teams do, guys. They play vanilla in the first game. The first quarter when Memphis' defense was getting scored on, they weren't stunning. They weren't blitzing. They were playing straight up three-man rushes, four-man rushes at the most. It's not going to look like that all season. They're not going to try to show a lot in their first game, especially when their second game is their conference opener. So I expect a lot more blitzes, a lot more stunts on the defensive line, a lot more creativity on both sides of the ball. Um, and, and luckily they do have, like you said, Brooks, nine days to clean that up and to kind of prepare. And I think they're going to come out and they're not even going to look like the same football team next Friday against Houston. I want to see pressure on the quarterback. They got to get in the backfield. They, they, there's got to be some consistent pressure, especially against a mediocre quarterback like Houston has. So uh, I agree with you on all fronts. I think just getting real game reps and watching it on film is going to be extremely helpful just to clean things up penalty-wise. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of improvement Memphis can can make in the ni- next nine days. So let's take a quick break. We'll come back on the other side and talk NCAA basketball. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, welcome back, everybody. So, yeah, it's it's full-blown college basketball time, NCAA time. First, I, I want to give a shout-out to South Alabama. Uh, you know, I, I don't typically do this, but Michael Flowers is a transfer from Western Michigan who he was the first official denial from the NCAA that came out yesterday. Uh, Western Michigan essentially lied to the kid and has lied publicly about the facts of his transfer waiver request. And uh, it's pretty pathetic to see that the NCAA in an, in a, you know, a situation where the school is not cooperating, decided to deny his immediate eligibility. Uh, it's just pathetic. So that's what I was alluding to with the fucked up NCAA. Um, but in other weird NCAA news. Kenny, you texted as soon as this hit the wire. It was very strange to see this morning the ACC and all of its coaches decided to vote internally and make a recommendation to the NCAA to expand the NCAA tournament to every single Division One school, like 300 what at 350 whatever schools are they crazy what what are they thinking 
Well, that's my question. That was my question to you two. I was like, what is going on here? What is the, what's the, the motivation behind this? Because, and I know that there's a lot of apologists out there that are going to say, you know, uh, and let's not, let's, let's not play, let's not beat around the bush here. This is a Mike Krzyzewski, you know, led deal. He's the, he's the, the, the guy who pulls the strings, not just in the ACC, but also in the NCAA in its entirety. But I know there's a lot of apologists out there. They're going to say, well, he, he just, he, he wants inclusion for everybody. And I don't buy it. I don't buy that. And so I wondered, that's what I was asking you guys. And I don't have any insight into, you know, the motivation behind it other than, you know, as a conspiracy theorist, which I readily am, is he trying to make a power play against Mark Emmert and the NCAA, you know, governing body saying, hey, whatever plans you think you might have, we're going to push something else through because, um, you know, the 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 main takeaway from it is that he the the coaches from the ACC are saying foregoing all conference tournaments conference tournaments we're going to uh just allow everybody into the NCAA tournament and that that to me is just I number one I don't see how it happens I don't see how they do it and then that effectively says with Mark Emmert coming out and saying we're looking towards a bubble situation a bubble type thing where man how do we have it's going to be hard to have you know 64 teams it's going to be hard to do 32 teams we can possibly make 16 teams work in a bubble type situation but and then the next day it comes out, Krzyzewski's like, hey, how about 350 teams in the in the in the NCAA tournament? And I I just don't I don't know what the motivation is. I don't know why that is even a topic of conversation. I don't see it happening. Um, but that those are just my thoughts, Brooks. Well you're I, the NCAA guru. I mean, just think about this. We're we're having a hard enough time envisioning college basketball with a non conference schedule this year. You know, you're you're talking about a game to game scenario where any given game could be canceled because you know, basketball's not like football to where you have eighty to ninety players on roster and you lose four guys that are in your two deep and you you keep trucking. You lose four guys for a basketball team and and contact tracing that goes along with that. If you if you have two dudes that test positive. And you all of a sudden you have to bubble your team for fourteen days. It's over. It's over. Cancel cancellations. It's over. You know the TBT had teams dropping out left and right. You know Memphis's Cody Toppert's team, Eberline Drive, got dropped the day before their first game over a false positive. So you're talking about suddenly expanding a, a tournament from you know sixty five teams to now going to 353 teams. And we're talking about just simple math. 13 scholarship players, four primary coaches. You've got support staff, a minimum of 25 people per team that are a part of their internal bubble. Minimum. And upwards of 40. At a minimum, you're looking at about 9,000 total people between the entire NCAA and just that's just teams, 9,000 people. How do you control that? How do you bubble that? I, I just don't see 
it even being remotely feasible. Um, I think the chaos would be wonderful. I mean, I think it would be like straight up chaos, but I just, it, I mean, and shout out to Brian Snow of 247 Sports National Recruiting guy uh he had a funny tweet he said uh when the news broke he said someone quick do a FOIA request for all the acc coaches bonuses if they make the ncaa tournament he thought maybe this was uh about them trying to get their ncaa tournament bonus from last year so uh, i don't know what to make of it all i know is that all of college basketball has lost its mind and uh you know you guys got any more thoughts before I get into the last little bit of NCAA news? Let's get to it. You got, let's get to it. All right. So today, this also this morning, the NCAA through the NABC announced that they were passing a one-time waiver for all NCAA Division I basketball teams to allow up to two non-coaching staff members to participate in general duties on court. And you you would think, okay, well, that makes complete sense. You know, like if you've got your director of player development, it would make sense that the director of player development would get to work on the court where players develop, right? But that hasn't been the case. It's, you know, for those that pay attention – NCAA basketball, your head coach and three assistant coaches, official assistant coaches are allowed to work on the court. This legislation that was approved on September the 8th allows for non-coaching staff members designated in that position to perform on-court managerial duties like rebounding, passing, assisting with drills. I mean, we're getting fancy now, but what that means for Memphis is, you know, you guys have paid attention and especially for our VIP members, you know that there's a very good possibility that once there's a better idea of what college basketball looks like for this season, Penny Hardaway will be given permission to make an additional hire outside of the assistant hire. If and when he makes that hire, that hire will be done with this new legislation in mind. Um, I do think it's a brilliant move uh, for Penny Hardaway to to go and make the move to get that done this year. And, uh, you know, I I wish, honestly, that the NCAA would make this a permanent rule change, not just for this season. Yeah, I completely agree. And this is something that we've talked about with some of the changes that have happened this year. Uh, including the no ACT, SAT scores. That's something that we we said should stay, and I I completely agree on this one as well. As you mentioned, you know, a lot of people may not even know that those types of coaches aren't allowed on the floor right now or or haven't been for some time, and it really doesn't make any sense. Like you said, like you said, there is a, there's literally a title for a basketball coach that is director of player development, which seems pretty straightforward. Who can't develop but players. But you can't develop players because you can't be on the floor. So uh, it, it makes it's a move that makes sense. And and like you said, Brooks, once once Memphis's assistant coaching search and, and all that stuff brings more clarity, we know who's going to be hired, uh, the hire is made, and then Penny moves on to potentially 
hiring another assistant in one of those director of player development spots or, or whatever the title is that he comes up with or decides to be, that that coach is also allowed on the floor. Because when you think about what these guys bring to the table, having all of them on the floor together is just more of an advantage. It's just another guy that knows the game, that knows players, that knows player tendencies, that's more than likely done a lot of research on the players that are on the roster. Um, and in cases where it's a guy that's been there, obviously that's not the case at Memphis, but in cases where there's a guy that's been there, he definitely knows that team very well and can add his input, not only to the coaches, how he does now, having to go to, to the coaches and tell them what he sees, but be able to tell those guys directly on the floor. So it's, it is it is a bit of a big move. It, it makes sense. It kind of makes you wonder why they haven't done this in the past. Um but hopefully it is here to stay, and, and, and hopefully some of these things that have been put into place this year are here to stay because they make a lot more sense than what's going on right now. I remember I remember when we did the uh, first episode of Coach's Corner, we had uh, Trey, Preston, Damon Stoudemire, and Bubba Luckett on talking about assistant coaching and head coaching and all those things in between. And I remember... Bubba Luckett telling us a story when he was a player at the University of Memphis, there was a coach. One of the main themes that ran through this is how head coaches are supposed to, you know, empower their assistant coaches to be able to do their job and how a lot of times when you first come in as a head coach in a new position, you think I've got to do everything. I'm going to do everything myself. And you don't really necessarily empower your assistant coaches to do uh, their jobs. And Bubba told us a story about, in practice while he was at the University of Memphis, this is a long time ago, how an assistant coach fell asleep underneath the basket in the middle of practice. And I, I, it, this reminds me of that. Like, are you going to have a, a basketball development coach falling asleep under the basket because they don't get to develop their players? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, it's hilarious. And it makes sense that they would do this. I mean, having, if this is about developing young dudes and young women on the court, why would you not want to have all hands on deck by the NCAA? You know, it just doesn't make sense. Well, one one day when this individual retires, I'll tell stories about uh, a coach that was at the University of Memphis within the last 10 years uh, who had a a reputation for falling falling asleep in coaches' meetings. So, uh, but that this this individual is still coaching in Division One basketball. So I'll or refrain from telling that story for now. Uh, but I, you know, one thing I do to kind of bring this full circle with the NCAA, I, I find it hilarious that the NCAA is passing legislation that continues to benefit coaches. It's coach centric. And yet one of the biggest pieces of legislation that was discussed all year leading up to the pandemic and even going into, into 2019 was allowing a one-time transfer waiver. The NCAA tabled that and said, things are just too crazy right now. We can't, we can't implement a new rule that's going to create a lot more oversight. I mean, the NCAA is in the middle of announcing furloughs where they're doing, you know, mandatory furloughs for NCAA staff. And they're saying in this new release related to these two coaches that can be on court now that there's oversight related to that. The they have to be the coaches have to be identified, have to be kept on record with the athletic department compliance. They have to be submitted to the NCAA. There's oversight related to that. 
they approve that. They approve this coaching-centric legislation. But if it helps players, if it benefits players, if it makes sense for them, nah, fuck them. That's what the NCAA's mindset is, and it's pathetic. So I think that's all I've got to say on the NCAA this week. Guys, y'all got anything else? I'm good. good. I think next show, next week's show is going to be very interesting. So stay tuned. I think that the next few weeks could be very, very big from a news perspective. So y'all stick in there with us. Stay tuned to Go Tigers 247. And with that, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to Tigers in 20. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love for you to leave a comment and a rating wherever you download your podcasts. If you are interested in daily content all about the University of Memphis athletic program, please hop over to www.gotigers247.com. Articles are uploaded daily, and you can join the Go Tigers 247 family by signing up for the VIP membership for even more behind-the-scenes information. Bright shining light, Sarajevo, and they needed to kill that light. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo. Thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. U2, they represent a personification of our resistance. The Hollywood Reporter hails Kiss the Future moving and inspirational. Kiss the Future! Viva Sarajevo! Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply.